Welcome back to the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are continuing our coverage of Wolf's novella, Tracking Song. This was first published in the collection In the Wake of Man back in 1975, though, of course, we have read it in The Island of Dr. Death and other stories and other stories. This is episode four here on Tracking Song, and this time we're going to be reading up to the section break on page 217. It is the longest section of the story, even though it is all just one day in our narrator's journal. It is day 10. Last time, we left off with our narrator, Cutthroat, following the creatures who took Kim glowing into a cave where he now finds himself after sleeping overnight. He's encountered new wild vampire-like creatures, and we pick up uh, the night after the next day where Cutthroat's going to tell us a little bit about where he is now, it being the night of day 10, and then tell us all about day 10. Yeah. So day 10, this is the longest entry that we get in the entire novella. It is 16 of the 58 pages that this story takes up in the Island of Dr. Death and other stories and other stories. But it is also the climax of the story. And so even though it is quite long, much of what is going on here is action. And I think it is fair to say, because I've heard from listeners that I am known for summarizing entire action sequences in single sentences. Uh, we'll see if this episode really takes much longer than than the others that we've done so far. Uh, maybe it will. Maybe it won't. But in any case, this entry opens, as you say, Brandon, very much like the others do with some information about the circumstances of the recording. And this just teases us with the outcome of the day's events. And of course, this also then serves to make us interested in what those events were and how that outcome was achieved. And in this case, he lets us know that the day is going to conclude with him leaving this cavern system, this underground city, uh, getting all the way out of the cavern itself. And he's going to be accompanied by three machines. And he uses we here as the pronoun when he's narrating this. So probably that's going to mean the successful rescue of Kim Glowing, but it may mean that he's got someone else with him. Uh, maybe he's thinking of the machines as people, as part of the we in this sense as well. Uh, we'll find out, though. The inciting incident here is that almost as soon as he enters this city to begin searching for Kim, he encounters one of the people who took her, these metal people. And there's a bit of a fight here, but the narrator rather easily actually dispatches this person with the Endieva wand that he got from Kim. And what really matters here is that this encounter lets Wolf tell us a bit more about who these people are. And, and really gathering more information about these people is going to be a big part of this recap episode. And then, of course, wondering about these people is going to be a big part of the discussion episode that we'll do next month. Uh, and here also is where we fully understand what's going on with these people, or at least fully understand that these people are cyborgs. They're cybernetic organisms. They're part machine, part humanoid, uh, and in this case, possibly actually part human, though that would make them the only other, at least even partially homo sapiens uh, creatures that we've met so far on this journey full of sentient species. Their heads and faces are half biological, half machine, and that seems to be true for their bodies as well, though we do get way more description of their faces here. And this fact, this this half and half fact, this also affects actually how they die when they're struck, or at least when this one is struck by the Endieva wand. The the wand, and you know, I'm still not sure if this is poison or some other mechanism here, but it kills the organic part just as quickly as it did with the snow monkey that we heard about in the last episode. But the machine part of these creatures dies way more slowly, and it actually still tries to get 
the the narrator is sort of you know a machine arm still trying to grab at the narrator and the only thing really that saves him is that it can't walk without its organic part but much of it is still functioning and i i do think it's worth pointing out here before we move on to the next scene that now that we have it clearly articulated that there are cyborgs in this world what we have is a story about a human being fighting machine people in order to rescue a person of another species all together and of course we're going to find out more about kim and and who or what she is in just a bit and i want to say here too even though it's going to be another page or two before we actually learn this i want to say that these people call themselves min that's m-i-n which given that note about pronunciation on the, the the robot on the previous episode that he says things differently than the narrator does i i wonder if this maybe is just supposed to be men that m-e-n is simply being pronounced min here uh, i don't know brandon what, what's your sense of these people well first i just want to say that this pronunciation bit did kind of throw me off because the narrator cutthroat doesn't actually demonstrate the types of pronunciations that are off when the robot is talking and so it's a kind of a challenging uh, gauntlet that gaunt that wolf throws down there uh, with regards to this pronunciation but i do think he put that in there to set us up for this moment with these creatures calling themselves men because they are also part robot. They've been maybe taking apart machines in order to extend their lives. So I do agree with you that these are men or some remnant of mankind. And I think we'll get more examples of that as Cutthroat continues along his journey in the cave. It's also the case that these men these cyborgs can't really die of natural causes or they seem to not because they're able to just add more machine to themselves every time a part of their organic flesh dies. Uh, And we're going to find out that that makes them more easily controlled as well. But we know how Wolf feels about creatures who cannot die. They're almost always the bad guys or some kind of tragic character. Uh, Wolf has written in the past in his stories about how the artificial extension of life is not really what the goal of humanity should be. So these creatures in the cave system and their leader are really not going to be the uh, ideal of humanity as, as we'll see. I hadn't really thought about this until you were were talking about the the manner in which Wolf shows us or tells us really about this pronunciation issue. But Wolf is really handcuffed here in his ability to show us what that pronunciation would actually be because this is a first-person story, but it's not just a story that's being narrated in the first-person voice or being told in the first-person voice just as a choice by the very real in-art-world writer of the story because Wolf, as we spent a lot of time pointing out in previous episodes, is really grounding this story as a material object in the world, right? And so it would be a little bit ridiculous for Wolf to actually show us how this robot is pronouncing things, because what that would mean is that the narrator, Cutthroat, is doing voices into his recorder, which no no one is going to do, right? That's an absurd notion. So he can't actually show us this. It's it's interesting. I, I wonder if he got to this point in the writing of this story and wanted to show that so that these connections might be a little more clear or it would be clear that we're thinking about the wrong thing entirely or something like that, but found that he couldn't while, while con- maintaining that the reality effect of the, the convention here. Uh, that's a question I would have loved to have been able to ask him. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it would have been 
right for the story for Wolf to kind of dive into writing in dialect at this point, a robot dialect. Uh, it wouldn't make a lot of sense, and I think it would kind of stop the flow of the story. And one thing that we've also pointed out that this story does very well is just keep you turning pages. So I, I also don't think Wolf, even if he maybe in a first draft wrote uh, Cutthroat speaking in dialect about how the robot is speaking, I don't think Wolf would have wanted to slow the story down or take the reader out of the voice of Cutthroat for any reason, because uh, it just would have taken them out of the story. And as I said, you know, he might have discovered that in the editing process. Yeah, this was absolutely the, the right choice, right? I think on, on all of these counts. Well, after this episode, the, the narrator travels deeper into the city, several kilometers, in fact. And we really ought to be clear here that he really does mean the word city. This is uh, quite expansive, all of these these buildings here. It's not just like an office park or something or a strip mall. It really is a city. And he is startled to find a, a material change in the nature of the cavern when he discovers that the path ahead of him is wet and it can't be rain. They're, they're in a big cave system. And so he surmises that someone has washed the road or, or you know put water on it for some other purpose, maybe. And there is a strange feature about this, a strange feature going on here. I'll, I'll confess I'm not really sure what it is actually doing in the story, which is that along this street, someone has constructed false flowers out of cave materials, uh, like sculpted flowers or made like little cairns that that are in the shape of flowers and and these flowers are native uh to this planet as far as we can tell they're called cloy and that's k-l-u-y uh, this is a word that wolf has made up or at least i think it's a word that wolf has made up though it may be from some earth language that i'm not familiar with and i would love to learn that and this was also then the name of the wigiki woman red cloy this is the, the leader of the women among the wigiki group that cutthroat uh finds himself when he first wakes up and the the petals and the leaves of these cloy, these stone cloy, they're, they're fragile cave rock, while the center of each of them is a, a, a colored gemstone. And because these flowers are extremely fragile and, and can't have been here for, for long, like really maybe just a few hours, the narrator surmises that someone must be aware of his presence and is possibly also guiding him to some place. And I think that turns out to be true. But still, I am puzzled by this element here. It just doesn't seem narratively necessary to me. I, I think it is kind of necessary to this story. I think Wolf is including some, you know, Wizard of Oz type elements here in the cave system <laughs> in the city, where instead of the yellow brick road, which is gold, he's doing this kind of gemstone road, which is the path to the uh, solution to his problems of how he's maybe going to get home or whatever. And as to the road washing bit, that confused me a lot too. But we're going to find out that that has a much more simple explanation, perhaps, than the placing of these red cloy mineral flowers. I think maybe we'll, we'll, we'll want to do more with this in the discussion. In fact, I mean, I know that we will because I do actually have a particular reading of these flowers that draws on uh, an extremely obscure bit of medieval literature, but that I think Wolf had access to when he was a little kid. We'll talk more about that in the in the discussion episode. But I think in any case, uh, the flowers here at first caused the narrator to look for another route to try to trick whoever might know he's coming. But then he decides that, you know, if they know he's coming, then it doesn't really matter. And so he just returns to this street with the flowers and he just follows it to wherever it's leading him. And there is a line here where he says, perhaps it was only fatalism. And I loved that line that he just says, 
yeah, this this is just going to be my my fate. Uh, and of course, he is being monitored the whole time. And as he nears the center of the city, one of the men just lurches into the middle of the street and places a pole in there. And it, this pole is topped with a pair of horns. It is clearly for the narrator in some way. And he approaches it without opposition or obstacle or any kind of incident, though he is aware that he is being watched. The pole is gray metal. It has intricate geometric designs interspersed uh, with faces on it. And the horns are clearly a kind of antennae, though it is hard for us, I think, to tell if this is uh, a literal and technical description or actually if this is a metaphor that the narrator is using. But in either case, they have writing on them and it is a script so fine that it would be nearly impossible to read even in good light. That's what the narrator tells us. And he is also sure, he says, that he's never seen this script before, which again, I think this is something that's going to be relevant in our discussion. And when he touches it, when he touches this poll, something happens that I, I guess we could probably describe as mystical. In fact, I think let's just read the, the text here uh, to really get at it. Here's what what the narrator says. Here's what Wolf writes. It felt as though I had touched a snake. My eyes told me that nothing had happened. The staff was still stiff and straight, with its antennae stretched upward. But my fingers felt a being, cold, living, and muscular. For a moment, I nearly dropped it, and I am certain now that if I had, I would have been killed. But because for all that sensation of living power, there was also a feeling of pliancy, of obedience, almost like the obedience of my own limbs, I did not. And as soon as he is equipped with this and armed with this, in fact, is what's going on here, as we'll find out soon, as soon as he is armed with this, he has a bit of a messianic moment here with the men. Uh, The men come out now and they come out from every doorway and some of them are even leaping down from the floors above and they prostrate themselves in front of the narrator and they just hang out like that, not saying anything and just prostrate before him. And so he bends down to touch one of them. And now they all rise up into a kneeling position. Uh, Their hands are open. And then they take the narrator by the arm and they guide him down the flower street until they reach the very center of the city. Now there's, there's more to this, obviously, but I want to pause here to say that I was definitely not expecting this turn of events. I was expecting increasing levels of conflict and some actual fighting by this point, not something that looks like worship. You're right. Nothing in this story uh, so far would have us would have us think we'd encounter, you know, not only the underground city, uh, but this mystical staff that like calls back to the stories about Moses and Pharaoh. And I think we'll see more parallels between this section of the story and moments in the book of Exodus uh, from the Old Testament coming up here. And because we know that Wolf has maybe used Pilgrim's Regress by C.S. Lewis as a bit of an inspiration here. One thing we're going to have to look at is whether any sort of allegorical reading in this section is possible at all to help us explain what's going on with Cutthroat and his mission. But, you know, we're going to find out why this staff creates this sense of worship or maybe fear is a better word uh, in the men, this kind of awe or worshipful fear Um, Because it seems as though only types of beings can hold the staff and uh, wield it. So this whole section also caught me by surprise, but I'm really excited to work out what's going on here in the discussion. It's definitely veered off the path of a typical hero's journey and kind of taken on a different life than I could have ever guessed from the opening of this story. 
Yeah, well, let's let's keep on going on this this hero's journey here, and, and we can we can get to the the center of the city where there is a a monstrous building that's huge and sprawling, walled and spiny with turrets and balconies. It's a, a great description from Wolf there. And as the the men guide him inside, he he hears them speaking for the first time, and he notes that he can't make out what they are saying, and, and they're muttering. So this might just be a matter of volume, but. He also notes that it sounds like the speech of the Wigiki and really the speech of all the other peoples that he's met on this world. And and this is something that, again, I keep saying this, but I think we're going to want to address this in the discussion. I'm just wanting to, to note these things as we go. And they say that they are taking him to the high seat, the, the place of judgment, the abode of purity. And they are doing this because he is complete and whole. Perfect. And this sparks a small conversation about perfection and completeness, what we mean by those terms. And it's clear that the men feel that they are imperfect and they feel this way because they are part machine. And the narrator even senses despair in them, senses a sort of hopelessness in them. And the men are also interested in the fact that he is male. They're very interested in his sex or really what they want to know is whether he's aware of any females anywhere. And he is right because he's here to rescue a female. He's here to rescue Kim glowing, but she is not who they mean, because she is not a human, though this is news to the narrator. But when he says this, they in turn tell him that he's been deceived by her, that she's been tricking him. And we'll get more on all of this in just a a little bit. Uh, And and it will, I think, right, be clear to most readers here that the men can't really be in charge around here. And at this point, they even say, there will be two now. And the other one of this two is a human male whose name is Mantru, but whom the narrator identifies really by his chief physical characteristic, which is dwarfism. So he calls him the dwarf. And so that's what we're going to call him here on this episode as well. And this building is his palace. This cavern is his domain and the men are his servants. And we're going to learn later that what he does is send the men out to look for other humans, but they've never actually found one before. And we'll get some more details about that as well. But for now, the the dwarf is displeased because it appears to him that the narrator, this human that the men have finally found, is gravely wounded, that he's punctured a lung and he's going to die soon. And so he orders the men to take him away, treat his wound, and then come back and tell him when the narrator has finally died. Uh, There doesn't seem to be any notion that the medical treatment that he's just ordered them to give him uh, will actually help. Uh, That's an interesting note, I think. But more importantly, perhaps, also at the dwarf's throne is Kim Glowing, now without her winter clothing, and she's even chained up to this throne. It really is kind of a Princess Leia at Jabba's palace situation here. <laughs> and uh, the, the narrator refuses to receive any medical treatment unless Kim is allowed to go with him. And so uh, the, the dwarf relents, he unchains her. There's some high-tech wizardry going on with these chains as well. And I think, though, that this is probably a good place to pause before we get to another part of the palace. I mean, all of the details here are really starting to, to matter, and they're starting to pile up in important ways. But I have to say that again this is a turn of events that i was not expecting i mean evil dwarf is a stock character of medieval germanic literature including scandinavian literature and we are dealing with something that draws on scandinavian literature in the sense that we've got a wintry climate full of characters who who really do kind of function as giants and trolls so yeah i guess why not an evil dwarf right it makes sense but i just wasn't expecting it yeah definitely not and we'll see it has some thematic reverberations in the plot later on uh, you know, a dwarf does also unexpectedly show up in Pilgrim's Regress. Uh, the dwarves serve a character called Savage, an allegorical character, who nearly takes down the main character of that book's 
his name is John, traveling companion, whose name is Virtue, uh, also misspelled V-E-R-T-U-E. Savage lives in a cave system as well. So, I mean, maybe this is just coincidental. But I think at this point we can say that Wolf drew some inspiration from Pilgrim's Regress or had it in his mind as he was writing Tracking Song for sure. Uh, There is a lot of great material in this section of the story, though. I love this bit uh, about being perfect for your kind. The men here don't recognize that in Cutthroat's mind, they are a completely different species and are perfect for the type of species they've become. But because they're aware of the types of changes they've made to themselves in order to stay alive, they are diminished in their own minds. And maybe it's because they're always confronted with this representation of uh, what ideal humanity, of how they are far from the ideal of what they are trying to be in the character Mantru. But it's another... But another thing that Wolf is addressing here is post-humanism. And this is the idea that humanity can force its own natural changes with evolution and adaptation. And that idea, I think, is abhorrent to Wolf because he's demonstrating post-humanity here as, as a crass attempt to prolong an individual life rather than to participate as a species in the way and adapting to the way that the world is changing around them, which we see all the species on the top side of the planet doing. I really love this conversation, and it's another kind of... Uh, moment on Cutthroat's journey where his character, his sense of ethical being is revealed to himself through this conversation. And I think it's great. Uh, You totally stole my George Lucas joke here, Glenn. (laughs) So uh, I just I want to say that, of course, George Lucas has been reading sci-fi magazines and probably saw this. This is right out of Return of the Jedi. But I think more importantly here, Cutthroat seeing Kim glowing naked shows him for once and for all, that she is a really different species than he is. And I think we're meant to understand that this vision of her naked has to do, this vision of her naked that Cutthroat has uh, shows him that she has different reproductive organs or something along those lines. And and that, you know, she's out basically as a romantic lead in this, uh, in this story. Right. This being chained naked to a uh, to a throne serves some actual purpose in the story, which is not the case with Princess Leia's gold bikini. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. I also just want to focus on the name Mantru here and kind of maybe drive home uh, a point I've been trying to make. This dwarf has set himself up to be a counterfeit god uh, of some sort among the machine people. And it does have to do with uh, this other staff that we'll see. The dwarf depending on how we're going to read the story, may have been a man just like Cutthroat in the past, but has been distorted and diminished by his choices and actions. And this is something that will be suggested later on, though we don't have any real proof for it or why that might be the case. But the name Mantru is an inversion of the phrase true man. And just as Mantru is an inversion of true man, you know, the image of dwarfs or imps or things like that are used as grotesques in a lot of uh, classical and medieval paintings to show kind of the corruption of man as well. So I think Wolf is also drawing on that imagery to show us that this is really a kind of hell, uh, this underground city. 
something else that I find shocking about this revelation here as well is that on the the days prior, right when when the narrator first gets into the cave and and encounters the the city, sees the city, and and especially when he encounters the the robot with its weird pronunciation of words, he's been thinking in terms of of centuries and and maybe even millennia about how long this has been abandoned. And now that we've actually got inhabitants, that becomes that that comes into question, right? How long has this been? abandoned for right when we could see that the the robot possibly has been around for a very long time just inoperative that might be possible with the min as well we don't really know how this you know cyborgness about them actually works but the dwarf mantru is a problem here right because i don't think we can envision that he's been alive for a thousand years i don't know that we can envision that he's been alive for hundreds of years either Uh, this is really maybe more of a topic for the discussion episode but i just wanted to point that out here as kind of a feature of the storytelling right that when we the reader find that there's actually someone here who's saying yes i am a i'm a human being and i'm in charge around here when we have thought that there has been no one in this cave for a long time and it clearly looks like it that itself was a shocking revelation and we're immediately curious about what's this guy's backstory and that's something that keeps me wanting to flip the pages here as well yeah i mean who knows what kind of effects eating all those food uh food cubes can have on a human being too (laughs) i mean they might they might prolong life in some way though i think we'll see that that is uh certainly not the case if you're mortally wounded (laughs) well all right so we are going to get to sick bay eventually here and there will be some action when they arrive at their destination but before they head off to do this medical treatment there is a, a continued conversation here in the throne room with one of the men that i think is very interesting it's going to supply a lot of fodder for discussion in two episodes so i think let's just zoom in on it here so the men are not actually going to repair the the narrator's lung what they're going to do is replace the narrator's lung and they're going to replace it with something that isn't weak flesh the narrator does not seem to like this idea he says it will make him like the men it will make him incomplete and imperfect and this men that is talking to him doesn't acknowledge this claim but instead really just addresses the implicit assertion that this is how the men came to be in the first place that they were gradually transformed from humans into cyborgs as their organic bodies wore out or were damaged more star wars stuff here right because basically this idea is the exact plot of darth vader more machine now than man twisted and evil right is the 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 idea that cutthroat has in mind here but the the men says that is not their origin story that's not how they came to be And Kim also has something to say about this. She says that she's heard them talking, and she has inferred that there used to be far fewer men than there are now, but that they divided themselves and filled in the gaps with machine parts, which is a really gruesome and scary image. But here again, the men also just says that's not correct. And at this point, the dwarf intervenes, and he makes a bit of a villainous monologue here. And I think this is uh, something else that is worth just reading. So let's do it here. This is what uh, the dwarf mantra says. You know nothing. You are like a child who has wandered by accident into a theater half a minute before the final curtain. You see people moving about, some masked. You hear music, observe actions you do not understand. But you do not know if the play is a tragedy or a comedy, or even know whether those you see are the actors or the audience. And... I mean, I love this as a villainous monologue here, but this also really might just describe a lot of Wolf's fiction, right? This is often how it feels to actually be thrown so immersively into one of Gene Wolf's speculative worlds. And when he delivers this speech, when the dwarf delivers this speech, the men actually prostrate themselves the same way that they had done for the narrator. And it seems almost like they worship 
humans or, or something like that, right? That they have this response to the narrator and then they're doing the same thing to Mantru, the dwarf here now as well. Wolf is going to give us multiple possibilities for the creation and existence of the men, uh, though none for the dwarf. It's it's very curious how this dwarf got here and what he's doing here as we already spoke about. But I love this monologue here, this idea of wandering into a theater, not understanding the play at all. And it's also important to point out here that this is half a minute before the final curtain. Um, the world is changing. And maybe the dwarf has some sense that he's at the end of his rope here, that the his path, his journey is coming to an end. And while this idea of wandering into the play is true for Cutthroat, we know that Wolf doesn't want the reader to feel like they've just wandered into a play and they can't figure out what's going on uh, with the play from context or whatever. So as I said, we're going to get a few more possibilities about just what happened uh, to the people who are in the cave and where they came from and what's going on. So it'll just be on us to figure out what the truth is for how these kind of organic and cybernetic beings came to be in this ancient cave system. Yeah, and I do think that that's what the dwarf here means when he's talking about coming in, you know, five minutes before the the curtain's about to close, before the end of the play. Because I don't actually think that he is aware that we are near the end of this story. I don't think that he knows about the great sleigh, and we're going to get some information in just a, a little bit and a few more scenes that I think will will strongly indicate that he doesn't know about the great sleigh. He doesn't know that uh, people on the great sleigh are telling the inhabitants of this world that uh, winter's about to be over and that the world is going to change and you can't eat the eggs of those types of birds. I don't think he's aware of any of that. But something that hadn't occurred to me until you were, were laying some of these things out here just now, Brandon, is that we spent a lot of the first three episodes here and maybe even the, the first two episodes of Tracking Song pointing out all of the ways where Wolf is envisioning tools, envisioning technologies, and telling us a lot about how they work and what they're used for. But here, now that we've encountered the Min, these cybernetic organisms here, something that is at least partially machine, something that is clearly a technology, we get no information about how they're built or what they're for. And in fact, we get confusing and conflicting accounts here. It's almost obfuscation where prior to this, Wolf had been really wanting us to be able to go make our own club bows and sled sleighs and so on. Yeah. And I think that's because Cutthroat can't determine the truth for himself by just looking at a simple mechanism. Uh, I mean, he also doesn't talk about the way his shaver works. He calls his lighter like just a fire starter. He has a, a simple knife. I mean, the simple tools... He can determine how they work and what their purposes are just by looking at them. And it's interesting to him, but he can't figure out how these technological creations work just by looking at them. There's there's far too much going on, though we do get maybe some scenes of potential robot repair in a little bit in this story. But that is not cutthroat's understanding of how this technology works. And I think that that's a great way for us to understand cutthroat as a character, that the things he understands, the knowledge he's kind of born with innately doesn't cover this advancement in technology. He can only really suss out how things work by their simplicity and by the mechanisms being on the surface. 
Yeah, that's an interesting observation. And we're going to get more about this this staff that he's got now, too. And I suppose also we might want to be thinking about the Andieva one here also. But I think at this point, we need to go onward toward sickbay. And uh, now we're going to get a, a walk and talk conversation here, a sort of Aaron Sorkin style walk and talk conversation about what manner of being Kim Glowing is. But first, the, the men who escorts them confirms that, yeah, they do revere humans. They don't quite worship them, but they do revere them. And that until today, they had thought the dwarf was the last human and the narrator says that the the men should really be thinking about where he came from then in that case and he says how do they know that there isn't a whole community of humans outside somewhere living just you know far from this cave but when the men asks if there is the narrator admits that no there is not and he says that he feels suddenly ashamed here to have been toying with the men this way and he goes on to explain that he he doesn't remember anything or, or really even know where he comes from but the Min actually has some idea. And this is another great speech that I think we should we should just read. This is what this Min says to the narrator. He says, You do not know where you came from, but I will tell you. Somewhere, far away from here, in some little valley in the hills, you were born among humans who remembered the old years and the high estate that once was man's. There you grew, but as you grew, your people dwindled, until at last it came to you that all were older than yourself, that you were the only member of your generation. Then you watched them die one by one, and knew that when the last was gone, you would be alone, ringed by the beastmen who grub roots or gorge themselves on blood. And at length, when that day came, your mind failed you, and you wandered away from your valley, and the old woman dead by her fire. Then the Wigiki found you. Now you are happy, because you see no difference between the beasts and yourself. But we will make you whole again." And so we get really here kind of the inversion of what's just been going on, where the narrator has been trying to guess at the origin story for the the men. This men now is making bad guesses about someone else's origin story. But this certainly is a plausible understanding of where the narrator has come from. It's actually probably more plausible than what is going to turn out to be the truth. Uh, This also, of course, is the exact plot of more than a few fantasy stories, right? It just is not correct in this case. But this is where we finally get some insight into the various peoples that we've encountered along the way. This this Min calls them beast men, beasts who are like people in some way. And he goes on to explain that the people our narrator has met, the Wigiki, the Pamagaka, they're not people. They are filth under his feet. And he even says that if the narrator wanted to kill Kim Glowing right here, right now, just for fun, that would not constitute murder. And it wouldn't be morally wrong in any way because these people, Kim Glowing, the Wagiki, they are lesser. They are beasts, even if they can actually speak. They are still beasts and killing them would not be murder. Yeah, the cyborgs that populate this cave, whether they've been influenced by Mantru or just have their own sense of right and wrong, seem to think of like moral activity or moral force as finding pleasure in killing things that are animals or less than they are. Uh, it's not clear that they would have a good reason to kill other than for the fact that they can. And if it's true that they've been just dividing themselves, their organic parts onto machines, as we see uh, one character, one traveling companion in Book of the New Sun doing, then this just might be normal for them. Just it's not killing If it's less than and if they kill each other, they can make a new life out of it. But it really exposes the idea that all they're doing is looking for any justification to kill others who are different from them. And if they can create any differences and if they can justify the differences well enough, they can justify any action towards those who are different. The cyborgs are really seeking differences in others rather than commonalities. And this is 
really a different ethical mindset than the type of mindset that Cutthroat is developing and learning about himself as he moves through the world. And I think that this is meant to be a sharp contrast in these two views and kind of a reflection on the way humans can use categories to justify and morally justify taking villainous action against one another. To think of these beast men as beasts under their as filth under the feet of humans, this is coming from people who feel less than humans because of the way they've prolonged their lives artificially. So it's just a very confused mindset. And these men are here almost to be uh, a sort of diabolic voice urging him to go in this direction, to go out and kill these creatures because they're less than he is. And, we don't know where that type of programming came from in their society. Right. And it is, it is a strange type of programming. It's a strange type of attitude. I mean, it's, it's just evil. This, this thing that they're trying to get him to do, or at least this thing that they're trying to get him to believe that it's morally okay to kill a beast for pleasure. Because I don't think that that's true. I don't know that we really know anyone in our society who thinks that it's true to 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 do that. It would be true to just kill a beast for pleasure, to kill a beast for fun like this, whether or not it can talk, whether or not it, we regard it as a person. Uh, and so there, there are several steps removed from the morality, I think, that Wolf uh, thinks of as being the, the actual morality here, of being the good uh, virtue to, to have, of being the, the, the good value to, to have here, the, the values that cutthroat embodies, right? And so we, we've got now this journey where there's this, we've seen this narrator regarding almost everyone that he meets, certainly everyone who can speak as a person, even though many of the groups around him regard actually each other as animals in some in some way and finally we come to really kind of the pinnacle of that right where the men are actually saying that not only are these people not people they're animals but that it would be totally fine to kill them for your own pleasure and in fact you probably should be doing that that might actually be what they're for it's it's quite disturbing quite appalling yeah it certainly is but i also want us to keep in mind as we move forward this sort of origin story this potential origin story for cutthroat because that's going to come back in just a little bit too right well now we are going to come to the the beginning of the action sequence that i promised at the top of the show because the min has not really brought them to sick bay where they really are is a kind of dungeon arena where the men want the narrator to fight and kill a beast man. And the idea is that doing this, that killing a beast man will help him realize that he is a master, that Kim and the Wagiki and so on are just animals. And really, you know, why they devise this plan is unclear, but it is definitely something that we're going to want to take up at greater length in, this, in the discussion episode. And so the, the men here, it turns out what has happened is that they have captured Ketin, this fierce warrior that we've been hearing about since the, the very first episode. And now it's a fight to the death. Except it isn't, because they all have words and they know how to use them. And the narrator just explains that this whole thing is a setup and that he and Ketin aren't enemies. It would be stupid of them to fight, because on top of this, they have a real enemy in common, the dwarf, Mantru. And there is a great part of this interaction where the narrator says that while it would certainly be a feat to kill someone as powerful as Ketin, he is prouder of having not killed him than he ever could be of having killed him, right? And so nonviolence here is a virtue for the narrator. This is something that proves his worth. It's the exact opposite of what the men have been trying to convince him of. But 
it turns out that this dungeon arena is, in fact, directly beneath the throne room. And in fact, there's a trap door that lets the dwarf just dump people in here. This is straight out of a Bond movie, or I guess really more apropos, it is straight out of Jabba's palace, right? So I definitely believe that George <laughs> Lucas, I just read everything Gene Wolfe uh, ever wrote and then then revised it into a space opera, which that's not a bad move, actually. And it turns out, hey, Star Wars, you know, it was pretty good. But because Captain is so big and powerful, they're actually able to use this trap door to get up and, and out of this uh, room they've been trapped in. And Captain is majestic as he goes through the trap door just effortlessly. And Kim and the narrator, they hear a scream above them as the killing starts, which really kind of all happens off page. And Kim and the, the narrator, they can't get out on their own because there just are physiological differences between them and, and Katin, for whom this was easy. And Kim does not think that Katin is going to come back for them. But he does. And I think this is an important part of the story. If we're thinking about who's a person, who's an animal, how can we tell? But at this point, we are really not done here. We actually still have seven pages to go on day 10. But this, this is the real climax of the action. And I actually do think that we can move through it pretty quickly. So they get out of the palace without much trouble. And as they move through the city, the, the narrator realizes that there aren't any structures that could be houses, that this was really never a city. It was never a place for people to live. It was really just a storage facility in a nice weatherproof environment. Now, he doesn't have any time to dwell on this here because at this exact moment, they encounter the rolling humanoid machine, this machine that had, had taken him to the, the food cubes the day before. And uh, he does call this machine Roller now, by the way, which is helpful. It's nice when characters have names. And we are about to get some action, but I do want to pause here to, to comment on something that happens when they meet Roller. The narrator asks Roller if he'll do whatever the narrator orders, and Roller touches his claw to his chin. Now, we have seen this gesture before, but we haven't actually called any attention to it in the previous episodes, because mostly those moments have really just been serving to build to this moment. But the Wigiki use this same gesture to mean yes, and we've also seen Kim use this same gesture this way. And that's clearly what this machine means as well. And so I think that this is also suggestive of where the beast men of this planet learned this gesture and the, the relationships among all of these creatures. So again, something we're going to want to talk about a lot more of in the discussion. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really just want to highlight here in this section, the epiphany that Cutthroat has that the city is really maintained by machines it's not a city at all it's not meant to be dwelled in um and that the machines have just been going on taking care of it and that you know some of the machines have been taken apart to augment the life of the humans and things like that but it also lends credence to the story that the min tells about what could have happened to cutthroat or maybe it just suggests that the story that the min told that they said happened to Cutthroat happened to all of them or the dwarf who lives underneath the city, who lives underneath the mainland, that they came down from the mountains or maybe they were among the first people on the planet or the, their DNA was important in creating the beast men on some level. And they found this place somehow and deformed themselves in order to stay alive rather than perpetuate their own species. And it's entirely possible uh, though this story that the Min tells doesn't indicate that, that no women were actually dropped down on this planet initially. Maybe it was just explorers. Um, but in the discussion, we'll talk about whether or not humans were ever able really to survive on this planet and what that may have to do with the realities of these uh, beast men, these animal-human hybrids 
uh, that make up the species that populate the world. Right. I think something you just mentioned there is actually really quite important, which is that it is clear that all of the men are males. And I think this is actually the reason why we get right before this day when he encounters the the things he calls the vampires. He makes a big point of saying that they have sexual dimorphism and he can tell just from looking at their faces uh, the difference between male and female so that when we get to the men and we don't get anything like that, it it indicates to us that something is not quite right with them, that they are maybe, although I've been using the word cyborg, but that they're maybe more cybernetic than organic, that there doesn't seem to be any sense of any kind of sexual reproduction that maybe ever was possible among them, right? If we're thinking about what is their origin story, were these humans who did become gradually over time more and more machine-like? That doesn't maybe seem to be the the case, yeah, it's hard to say, and it's certainly something to puzzle over, but uh, we still have a little more of day 10 left to go. <laughs> we do. So so let's close this out. Let's go see what the narrator is going to get up to with Roller, his his ally on his hero's journey here. So the, the reason the narrator is asking whether or not Roller will follow his orders is because even though they are safely on their way out, they don't have any winter clothing for Ketson and Kim, and they are not finding anything that they can use as they search through the city either. But if they have a few super robots, then they can go back to the dwarf's palace and demand them back. They can get Ketin and Kim's clothing back. And so this is what they're going to do. They all go back now, including Roller and two other machines. Uh, the narrator has named these other machines, by the way. Uh, one of them is called Dragon because of its long neck and Bug because it has six legs. I love that the long neck gets called Dragon and not, you know, Giraffe or something like that, which <laughs> seems like that's the more thing on par with Bug, but that's okay. I think Dragon's a much better name. I wish Dragon was my name, I guess. Well, these machines start to dismantle the palace and the, the men come running out, but there's not really anything that they can do because the machines won't obey them. The machines only obey humans. And so the men, they give back the winter clothing, though they do this because they think that it's going to be an exchange, that if they give back the clothing, then the narrator is going to leave the palace intact. But when it comes to it, the narrator has the machines continue their demolition. And in the end here, the, the dwarf, Mantru, uh, emerges from the palace to try to defuse this whole situation. And he says that the arena dungeon death fight business wasn't his idea. Yeah, this was his vizier acting independently. You know, that's the, the excuse of, uh, of a bad boss always. And so they should make up and be friends. And he says that when eventually the men find a human woman, you know, the two of them can share her. And during this conversation, the the dwarf says a number of things that uh, I find really interesting. I think actually are quite valuable to understanding the whole premise of this speculative world. So let's just read them here again. I really like reading all the dialogue here on day 10. It's all just fantastic. <laughs> but uh, at first he explains that he sends the men out looking for a human woman. But but now, but and, and now here I'm, I'm going to actually be quoting, the beasts grow more and more as we, so that sometimes they make errors they would not make if they had the radiations of my own mind for comparison, uh, by which he means that, right, that the men can't tell the difference between a human and a beast man anymore. And then the other thing he says is this, someday human beings may return to this world. Then they will find us here and we shall crush the beasts as we did of old and raise new cities to the stars. And this bit is, I think, particularly interesting because I think it suggests that we, the readers, may actually have a better understanding of the history of this planet than the dwarf himself does. And I'm looking forward to tackling that, really looking forward to unpacking that in the discussion. But for now, we must duel. And well, 
I do not normally care for really any kind of fight or any kind of battle scene in my stories. This duel, these snake staves that we're going to get here, this is actually pretty cool. So Mantru and the narrator, they thrust their staves at each other. And for the narrator, at least to his mind, they seem to come to life and they rear and they lunge at each other. And while this is going on, his staff is ice cold, but it's not really a temperature. It's more of a a, a draining. And he says that he feels it drawing strength from his body and that his life seems to be flowing through his hand and down into the the staff, which then is fighting Mantru's staff. And uh, let's just read the the climax of what I guess amounts to be a, a wizard duel here. Then the heads were near him and mine unwound a meter of its length and struck at the dwarf himself. He dropped his staff, but the slender horns of mine drove into his body from either side. As he died, I felt a great pleasure and power that left me weak and shaken and bewildered afterward. And so, in the end, he does kill just like the men wanted, and he also does feel just like the men wanted him to, but this was not the outcome that anyone actually wanted, and least of all, the narrator him, himself, and we're going we're gonna to take that up in the, the next episode. Yeah, it's clear that the sense of the fighting with the staff, the experience of it, the perception of it between Cutthroat and then Kim and Ketan was so different. I mean, Cutthroat experiences the head of the staff flying at him and the kind of staffs are fighting each other. And it's about who's more powerful and and, uh, what's going on here and and maybe who has more moral worth. It, It is a wizard duel because it's about good overcoming evil in some way more than it's about physical prowess like with Ketan. Um, so it's it's really interesting because what Kim and Ketan see is just Cutthroat pointing his staff at Mantru and Mantru dying. Uh, it's, it's a really, really fascinating scene. I, I want to go back to uh, this bargain that the men seem to think Cutthroat is making with them that in return for Kim and Ketan's clothing he will keep the city intact. And Cutthroat basically says nothing when they make the offer, when the men make the offer. But Kim says that, yeah, we'll keep it intact. And when Cutthroat begins to take down the dwarf's palace here with the machines, they say, you promised that you were going to do this. And Cutthroat in front of Kim kind of uses the twisted logic of the men against them and he says kim is just an animal and her word isn't binding on me any more than you know anything Uh, so it's kind of a rough moment i can only imagine kim being there uh, and i think that 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 moment's going to have some reverberations in the plot here and and maybe lead to kim's decision about uh, what she's going to do what kind of journey she's going to go on I also want to point out this bit about Mantru trying to rebuild humanity, or maybe that's his goal, by finding a human woman on the outside. Uh, You know, it's kind of a disgusting motive. Mantru himself doesn't go out in search of anybody. He just kind of stays in the cave and hopes a woman will come to him. Uh, it's, It's kind of a disgusting mentality. The idea that Mantru's like, yeah, we could share her and then... How would they even rebuild humanity? I mean, the whole situation is just grotesque. And Man- Mantru's attitude is clearly not about uh, the perpetuation of the species in any way. It's about gratifying his own pleasure. And I think Wolf does a good job of making that pretty clear in this story. 
But Mantru is on some level aware of the changes that are going on outside, not of the Great Slave, probably not of its laws, but the fact that the animals, the beast men are evolving to the point where they are more like men than animals, that the cyborgs can't tell the difference anymore. And we have to wonder, is this by design? How many generations has this been going on for? You know, and and this is a big part of the broader story that Wolf is telling about what's happening on this planet with the Great Slay that he's just peppering into the dialogue here. So uh, another great section. I mean, this day 10 is really just fantastic and full of information uh, that you can easily skim over and be left bewildered by the end of the story if you're not paying close attention. Right. And and there is something really sinister and also really, I think, sad and really pathetic about what it is that Mantru is dreaming of here, uh, about why he is even sending out the men to find a, a, a woman for him, because he doesn't yearn for the return or dream of the return of humans from Earth so that he can have people to be with. He just wants them to come so that he can feel like he's a master again. He's not looking for a woman so that he can have a companion or have some kind of community with other people. He's just thinking about almost building, building an army of humans in in some way here that he, he has been alone, maybe his whole life actually, right? He's been alone at least certainly for a very long time and has lost sight of what it would even mean to be around other people uh it's it's a it's actually really quite pathetic really quite sad yeah maybe this play that he's living in does turn out to be a tragedy i mean it is a kind of nihilistic attitude that he has he refers to his situation that he's in as a play i mean he's waiting for the final curtain too and we saw this curtain imagery before in the story where the curtain is torn and the new kind of world comes into being um and while Mantru maybe can't consciously admit that he's waiting for the world to end in some way, that he's just waiting to die. Uh, I think Wolf is connecting these ideas together with Mantru's sort of uh, sense of nihilism and his commitment to violence. It's really is a tragic figure. Well, all right. We are almost done. We're at the, the home stretch here. So the, the narrator, along with Kim and Ketan and, and all three machines, uh, Roller, Dragon, and Bug, they all leave the city and, and, and the cavern, really, as well. They leave all this behind and they reemerge into the world of ice and snow and cold. And the narrator has the machines block up the entrance to the cavern. They, they, they pull down tons of rock. And Kim wants to continue onward with the narrator in search of the Great Sleigh, but Ketan has no interest in that. But before he goes, he does want to kill something for them all to eat before he, he leaves. And presumably this is in thanks for getting him out of the, the dungeon, though he never actually says that explicitly. It's almost as if this is not something that he would use words for, that the, the, the gift of a kill speaks for it itself. And really, that's it for day 10, except for this coda that I actually just want to, to read. And I, I find this bit to be just gut-wrenching here. I have finally come to understand that this device does more than simply preserve my words. I know now that by its instrumentality I communicate as well, and that you, on the great sleigh, listen as I speak. When I am quiet and there is no sound but the crackling of the fire, and Kim's soft breathing, and Ketan's shuddering sighs, I think I hear you. I do not understand why you will not speak to me, but it is enough to know that you are there. And man, this 
again, this was a, a development that was not expected, and this just felt like a blow to the gut here. Right. I mean, maybe parts of Cutthroat's memory are coming back in some way, or he's, or his amnesia is subsiding. I mean, we, we do get in Day 10, uh, there's a section we didn't really cover too closely, where Cutthroat says he has knowledge of a lot of things, just not of himself. And, and that's kind of when we're talking about innateness or, you know, like tabula rasa, which is a blank slate, like Wolf is really playing with these two ideas that that Cutthroat has some innate knowledge and maybe some of the amnesia is waning. And we can trust that what he's reporting to himself about his understanding of the world as it changes or his understanding of the Great Slay is true. And it maybe suggests that Cutthroat is an envoy of some kind or he's sent ahead of the humanity coming back or the people on the Great Slay. In any event, it, it certainly indicates to me that Cutthroat is on a mission to explore this world and report back because he seems to instinctually know to speak into this recording device. And it may be the case that the conditions of such a mission require that the envoy be without certain memories or certain understandings of survival, though why that may be the case is, is difficult to say. But in any event... I just think there's a lot of food for thought here that we're going to have to untangle for the discussion. Uh, there are just a few more things I want to say here before we wrap up the episode. This bringing down of the cave mouth, the dueling with the snake, with the staffs connected to snake-like imagery. Uh, this reminds me of the duels of the magicians in Exodus where Moses and Aaron use a snaff use a staff and uh, turn it into a snake and pick it back up and kind of try to beat the court magicians of the Pharaoh using the staff to part the Red Sea and then bringing it down behind the Egyptians from over so they don't overtake the Israelites as they flee Egypt. All of this is this kind of imagery caught up here in the uh, rescuing of a people not just from slavery, but so that they're going towards a promised land. It's the first biblical imagery of having a place that's prepared for you in advance uh, that you go to that is that is a place that's designed for you to live in um, that you get in Revelation in a more metaphysical sense with the, with the new Jerusalem. So all of this is really caught up again in biblical prophecy or prophetic overtones for me. Um, Another thing, Kenton's imagery, which we didn't talk about, he's a lion. I think that's pretty obvious. He's got a big mane and hair and all of this stuff, and he's giant and powerful. And lions, of course, represent courage in a lot of uh, literature. Certainly the virtue of courage is represented by a woman and a lion. So I think there is also this totem imagery at play with Kenton being an ally in this section under the city. And all of that will be picking up in the discussion. So I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of this section of Tracking Song. And if you would like to support the network and help us make more podcasts for you, please check us out at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. At every level, you get immediate access to dozens of bonus episodes. And from the second level up, you get to participate in the process that we use to decide what we cover across the network. And whatever you can pledge helps us get closer to our goals. And these, of course, are all about expanding our coverage and, and doing more shows for you, more episodes for you. 
Next time, we'll be back with the final recap of Tracking Song. We'll be recapping the conclusion to this uh, amazing and long novella. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.